Well, thank you. It's a joy to be here. And I can tell we're close to uh, Nashville because uh, I have been in hundreds of churches uh, bigger than this one that don't have world-class musicians like that. Your musicians are superb. Uh, In fact, I'm tempted to quit early and just let them play some more. Also, I... uh, I need to correct something that Scott Malsby said. He said he was glad that Bot Radio could be just a small part of Grace to Use ministry. Actually, Bot Media has always been a major part of our ministry. And to some degree, I think we owe the success of Grace to You to Bot. Back in the early days, so when John MacArthur started on the radio, he, he himself wasn't, uh, he didn't pursue that avenue of ministry. Somebody else in the church did. And John himself wasn't all that sure that radio could be successful if you take a, a sermon like we do and break it into a part and put it on the radio. And uh, it, was, it was the bot network that first gave him the encouragement that, you know, this is going to work. He went on a, he took a sabbatical one summer, went on a cross-country trip, and uh, in Kansas City, in the Kansas City area, uh, Bot sponsored a uh, radio rally. At that time, Bot had only two radio stations, one in Kansas City and one in Oklahoma City. And uh, the, the thing was absolutely packed out and uh, people so thrilled to meet John. And I don't think John had any concept in his mind that there were that many people listening to Grace to You until they went to that radio rally. So I've always been very grateful to Bot. They are now... Uh, I think the second largest, uh, maybe the largest privately owned uh, Christian network in the world. Is that right? Yeah. So, so we're thankful for them, and they give us a lot of coverage, and, and we love that. Now, the, all the publicity says that I was going to speak on uh, help thou my unbelief or help my unbelief, something like that, because I was going to do that passage from Mark 9 where the The man says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and uh, talk about faith and the difficulties of faith and that those of us who have faith, even though we examine ourselves, sometimes our faith falters and is weak. And I do want to pursue that subject with you, but I thought since I've got just two opportunities to speak, I want to look at a couple of uh, sort of a twin set of passages from the book of Matthew instead. And so tonight we're going to look at a a passage that I'll call Little Faith. And uh, tomorrow we'll look at the next chapter in a message I call Great Faith. So this one is Little Faith, Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to look at the incident when Peter walked on water. And what is remarkable about this incident is how strong Peter's faith seemed when he stepped out of the boat. I mean, it really was great faith. You've never stepped out of a boat. Uh, But compare that to how quickly he begins to sink in despair. And I think the whole incident is a great metaphor for faith. At least that reflects how my faith is sometimes easily and unexpectedly assaulted by doubt. And so I want to consider what this passage teaches about strong faith and weak faith, fearless faith and faltering faith, and we're going to draw out some implications tonight related to the doctrine of assurance. I was listening to a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones not long ago in which he pointed out that assurance is one of the most prominent subjects in the New Testament. I'd never thought of that, but he points it out, and he's right, that virtually every New Testament epistle was written to address some doubt or answer some question or settle some uncertainty, all of them aimed at 
either stimulating or reinforcing the assurance of believers. And, uh, and throughout Scripture, we are encouraged to have assurance, to be sure. It's not inherently brash or presumptuous to be confident in your faith. And the first test of whether someone's faith is authentic or not is the object of that faith. In whom are you trusting? Are you trusting in your own abilities? If your, con- if your confidence is in the raw power of your own free will, if your faith is anchored in the memory of some decision you made or some act you performed in order to obtain salvation, that isn't authentic faith. If your hope rests in the level of spiritual sophistication or, or doctrinal understanding that you've achieved, or, or, or if you salve your own doubts by reminding yourself that you have a pay, attained some position of rank or longevity in the church, maybe you're a Bible study leader or an Awana captain, or, or, or maybe you've been a steady attender in Sunday school for some sense of for, for years since your childhood, if that's what you're looking to as an anchor for your hope, then your hope is false hope. Authentic faith always looks to God, not to self-potential, not to human willpower, not to personal accomplishment, not to self-reform or self-determination or zeal or passion or commitment or any of those things. Your faith should not be in your church membership or the pronouncements of priests or popes or church councils, your hope, if, if it lies in any of those things, then you've placed your faith in something or someone who cannot save you, and it's not true saving faith. God is the only proper object of our faith. And of course, that also means we trust his word. We trust his promises. We know that he is faithful to his covenant. We trust him implicitly, and he is therefore the sole ground and object of our assurance. So we look to him for assurance as well. We don't try to ground our assurance in our own works, not in our own abilities, certainly not in popes or priests or sacraments or ceremonies. And that is one of the key lessons of our text. Matthew 14, we're going to start in verse 23. But our, our focus is going to be on verse 31. And before I read the passage, let me just give you some context here. And that's going to take us away from Matthew 14. So if you've already turned there, uh, forgive me for not even going there yet, but mark your place. And first let's look at John 6, because these are parallel accounts. John 6 is the Apostle John's record of that day when Jesus fed the 5,000. And it was a remarkable miracle. All four Gospels record it, and everyone there knew it was a miracle. There were at least 5,000 people. They they typically counted only the men, so with women and children, this might have been a much larger crowd. And uh, this was was an amazing miracle that reveals Christ's power as creator. So everyone knew this is a sign of messianic proportions. And it was furthermore exactly the kind of miracle that they'd been hoping for. You know, free food, no preparation necessary. And I think they took it as a sign that the millennial kingdom was dawning. A kind of heaven on earth where hard work would be abolished and the curse of sin would be overthrown. And they were ready for that, just like you and I would be. And this miracle, therefore, marks a major turning point in Jesus' ministry but it turns out to be the opposite from what you would expect. From this point on, 
the crowds began to drift away. John 6, verse 66 and 67. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? That, that trend of people abandoning Jesus is vital to the point John is making in John chapter 6. <clears throat> this is really the whole theme of this chapter. It starts with this massive crowd, and by the end of the chapter, you've got basically only the 12 left, and one of them is a devil. And here's what happened. Starting with the feeding of the 5,000, people began to recognize Jesus' miracles, the healings, his authority over demons, uh, his authority over the Pharisees, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. All of these combined were irrefutable proof that he was the Messiah. But at the same time, people began to realize this is not the kind of Messiah we had dreamed about and hoped for. They wanted a strong military and political leader who would overthrow Roman rule, establish his own government, rule the entire world from David's throne in Jerusalem, and this would make their lives easy and trouble-free. And and Jesus clearly had the power to do that, but that's not his agenda, and he demanded that the people receive him on his own terms. And his, his preaching was hard, too. And so the first 13 verses of, G, of John 6 are John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. Then starting in verses 14 and 15, John says the people recognized that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. John 6, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who was to come into the world. And in fact, they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. Now, of course, there is coming a time when, in the words of Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign on earth forever and ever. But this wasn't the time, and those weren't the means by which God ordained for Christ's earthly kingdom to be inaugurated. He had other work to do first, to redeem us for, from our sins. And so he withdrew from the multitudes. And later than that same night, under cover of darkness and in the middle of high winds and rough waters, he crossed Lake Tiberias, that's the Sea of Galilee, in order to get back to what was really his center of operations in Capernaum on the North Shore. And he wanted to get away from these crowds who were following him. So he's doing this kind of secretively. But verse 24 says, the next morning when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They knew that's where his headquarters were. And they wanted him to do another miracle for breakfast. And Jesus instantly knew what they wanted. Verse 26, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And then what follows in John 6, starting in verse 32, is the bread of life discourse, which had the immediate effect of severely offending and turning away the large majority of those thousands of people who were following Jesus. And so in 24 hours' time, he went from delighting the multitudes with a free meal to chasing away all those crowds except for a handful of faithful disciples turned away literally thousands of people 
because they were half-hearted and unsound in what they believed and unclear about whom they believed in and uncommitted to the truth he proclaimed. Now, understand, some of these people were men who had originally left their homes and families and jobs in order to be affiliated with Jesus. All of them had made some kind of sacrifice or suffered some hardship in order to be part of the crowd of the 5,000 in the first place because it was in a remote area where that happened. It wasn't easy to get there. Jesus had gone there in the first place in an attempt to get away from the large multitudes who, who had been tracing his every step and he was actually in mourning at the time. Matthew fourteen thirteen says he had just learned about the death of John the Baptist. So he withdrew in a boat to a desolate place by himself, Scripture says. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And if you've ever seen the geography uh, on the eastern shore of Galilee, you understand that these people traveled a very long distance over harsh, rocky terrain in order to get where Jesus was. So the people in this crowd were clearly willing to sacrifice a lot in order to follow Jesus. They would have been devoted, even fanatical followers of Christ as long as they could have him on their own terms. But that isn't real faith. Real faith, in the words of the Shorter Catechism, Real faith is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the Gospels. And despite the difficulty this crowd had endured in order to get to this desolate location and to chase Jesus all around Galilee, the way they turned back and immediately stopped following as soon as he taught something they didn't like, it, it's really breathtaking. Their faith in Christ was not, clearly not, authentic, wholehearted faith in him. He actually knew their hearts. And John 6 makes it pretty clear. He deliberately drove the half-hearted disciples away at the end of the chapter, verse 67. And that's when he even turns to the 12 and says, you guys want to go away as well? And running through this whole chapter, John 6 then, there is this underlying theme of true faith, versus phony religion. And at the start of the chapter, you might think this is going to be a triumphant narrative. Like verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Verse 3, he is up on the mountain with his disciples sitting down to teach. And what happens next is one of Jesus' most important miracles. He takes five barley loaves and two fish and he feeds an outdoor congregation of 5,000 people and so up to that point, the first three or four verses of the chapter, through the, through the feeding of the 5,000, the narrative is completely and positively victorious. But it ends on a decidedly sour note when it becomes patently obvious that this multitude who seemed, the people who, who seemed the most devoted to Christ, out of that massive crowd, only a few really, truly trusted him. So it's the day after the great miracle. Keep this in your mind, the timing and the geography. Jesus is back in Capernaum at the synagogue there. He gives the bread of life discourse. People bristle at his claims of deity and all the talk about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Verse 41, so the Jews 
grumbled about him. That's talking, by the way, not about the Jews as a race, but the, that's the Jewish leaders, the heads of that synagogue, the, and the Pharisees who followed Jesus around looking for reasons to accuse him. They grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They're offended that he's, he's claiming to have come from God. They recoil when he talks about giving his own flesh as the bread of life. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And notice, Jesus' reply is not an uh, apology about their misunderstanding. He doesn't clear it up for them. He doubles down. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true true drink. Now, you'd have been shaking your head at that too. So in verses 60 and 61, even Jesus' own disciples, even the inner circle of the 12 are grumbling about how offensive this teaching sounds. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And so then rather than trying to calm them down and explain privately even to his own disciples about what he meant when he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, Jesus says this, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So he doesn't try to soften his teaching just because they claimed it was too hard. He had just proved he was God. They should have been listening to whatever he said instead of challenging it. He would have explained it but they challenged it. And so he doesn't try to soften it just because they claimed it was too hard. In fact, he throws the doctrine of total depravity at them. Verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And that's when John says, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And John 6 then ends with a reference to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So that is the historical context that our passage is set in. These were all events that happened in that two-day span, the day before and the day after the story Matthew is going to tell in the passage we're going to look at. The incident we're going to be looking at occurs in the night, in the pre-dawn hours of that second morning, while Jesus and the disciples are traveling from the wilderness back to Capernaum. So now that you have that timeline in your mind, or I hope you do, turn back to Matthew 14, and we'll take up Matthew's version of this narrative, starting in verse 22. And all that background information is relevant, because in the vignette we're going to be looking at for the rest of our time tonight, it becomes clear that even among the best and, and most faithful of Jesus' closest disciples, their faith in Christ was surprisingly meager and weak and fragile and often beset with doubts and prone to failure. That is the nature of faith. You know it, because if you have faith at all, you know that. And we pick up right after the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples do the cleanup afterwards. And verse 20 says, they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And then verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So he sends the 12 back towards Capernaum 
by boat. And that brings us to our text, Matthew 14, 23 through 32. And rather than reading that whole text in one big bite, I'm going to take it tonight a verse or two at a time, and we'll work our way through this together. So you're going to need to have your Bible open for this. Matthew 14, starting at verse 23. And this is that famous incident where Peter walks on the water, or rather he starts to walk on water, and just when it looks like a major triumph, he starts to founder. On one level, it's discouraging and alarming to see Peter, of all people, sink so quickly from strong assurance into utter despair, almost in the blink of an eye. On the other hand, I don't know about you, but it's encouraging to me to know that this is the nature of true faith, and it's a battle we all fight. Our faith is easily beset with doubts, and even when we think our faith is the strongest, it's prone to fail. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Assurance is not always easy, and it's not normally settled once and for all with a permanent and unshakable confidence. But assurance, your assurance of your salvation is something that must be nurtured and cultivated and held on to. Strong assurance is something that usually goes hand in hand with spiritual maturity. Real assurance is is the result, it's the fruit of a steady walk of faith. It's not something that typically springs up full-grown at the first sign of faith. And even Peter struggled with fickleness and unsteadiness, so there's no reason any of us should expect to be immune to conflicts or doubts when our faith comes under attack, and it will. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. According to Hebrews 3, 15, the ultimate mark of authentic faith is that we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And implied in that statement is the assumption that if our faith is really genuine, it will come under attack like Peter's did. And God graciously will help us to hold on to it. That's the proof your faith is real. Again, all four Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew, Mark, and John all record that Jesus and his disciples went back to Capernaum that night by boat. According to John 6.15, when the multitudes began plotting to make Jesus their king by force, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. Verse 23 of our text says, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. So that's what he went up there for. He dismissed the crowds and then went the other direction from them. So he could pray in solitude, and he stayed there alone while the disciples got into the the boat and headed back towards Capernaum. Now, several of the 12 lived in Capernaum. That's why Jesus had made it his headquarters. This is where Jesus usually returned after any of his travels through Galilee. And so there's nothing remarkable about him telling them to go back there, except that on this occasion, it signaled suddenly the abrupt end of what looked like the start of what could have been a spectacularly successful ministry to this vast multitude who had stalked Jesus into the wilderness. And the disciples, probably some of them felt like Jesus really bungled this. All those people are going away angry. And they had come out to the wilderness excited to follow him. And all three of the gospels that record this incident, Matthew, Mark, and John, say that on this night the sea was rough 
and the disciples were rowing against a fierce wind. So here's the scenario. The day is over. Jesus is up on top of a nearby mountain praying. Verse 24 says, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now follow the time clues here. A, a surprisingly long time elapses between verse 23 and verse 25. Because Jesus is still on the mountain praying, verse 23, when evening came. That's sundown or thereabout. The disciples' boat by this time, by sundown, was already a long way from the land beaten by the waves. Now, if, if you think Jesus immediately ran to their rescue, went to the boat to quell the storm, which they knew he could do, he'd already done it once, and to get the disciples through these rough waters before darkness set in, if that's the way you picture it in your mind, that's not what happened. Verse 25 says, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So the night was divided into four watches, starting at 6 p.m. So from 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock was the first watch, three-hour watches. From 9 o'clock to midnight, second watch, midnight to 3 a.m., third watch. And the fourth watch, when Jesus finally came to these guys and, and, and arrived at their boat, that was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. In other words, this ordeal began for the disciples when the sun was going down, and by the time Jesus got there, it was closer to sunrise than to sunset. So it had been a long and grueling night, and John 6.19 says they had rowed only about three or four miles. It's hard to imagine a more discouraging way to spend the night after what had already been an exhausting day. And then to add insult to injury, Mark 6.48 says about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Now listen to what Mark adds, one detail that you don't have here and he meant to pass them by. So it's like Jesus is just out for a stroll, and he's making better time walking on the water than 12 fishermen, or 12 guys including a bunch of fishermen, are making with several sets of oars. There's two ways to respond to that. One would be you'd call out to Jesus and ask him to quell the storm because they knew he could do that. He'd already done it once before, six chapters earlier than this, Matthew 8, when he stills the storm. In fact, keep that in mind because we'll come back to it. He'd already stilled a storm that could have killed them. They knew that he could do that. That would have been one response, but the more likely response here would be to be terrified. This is probably the human response. And that is how the disciples responded, Matthew 14, 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in, in fear. Now, they were already in fear for their lives. The, when it takes all night for a team of a dozen men and some of them professional fishermen to, to get a rowboat to go just three or four miles into a stiff wind and high waves, that is a fierce storm, harder than the one that just blew through here. So they were already in fear for their lives. The danger of capsizing was real. They were exhausted. They had been toiling with very little progress through five or six terrifying hours of darkness. When they see this ghostly presence walking on the water, and Hebrew lore, by the way, about the sea was full of stories about sea monsters and water demons. The Jews, for the most part, were not a seafaring culture. And the idea of an apparition that 
rises up out of the water was just about the most terrifying thing they could imagine. And so they're already exhausted, frustrated, frightened, fearing for their lives. And then around sunup, here comes Jesus on the water, and it's like he's just out for his morning walk. You'd think that was ghostly too. But, verse 27, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, at that point, Matthew starts giving us details that none of the other Gospels give us. Matthew 14 is the only record of Peter's incident, in, uh, Peter's role in this incident. Verse 28, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. That's an amazing vignette into Jesus' private dealings with the Twelve. Again, we wouldn't know anything about this if Matthew hadn't recorded it. I'm glad Matthew recorded it. I think Jesus' interaction with his disciples must have been full of remarkable lessons about the power of Christ and the frailty of their faith and the difficulties of discipleship. And and none of the Gospels even aim at telling us every incident and every miracle like this that happened. And uh, that would especially be true of the private interaction that Jesus had with the Twelve. You know, I'd, I'd love to know some of the things that happened but were never written down. Uh, we know there is a lot untold, unrecorded detail about the miracles of Jesus, the miracles that he did, and his private ministry to the Twelve. Because at the end of John's Gospel, John tells us that there are many other things Jesus did, which neither John nor any of the other Gospels record. And John says, if every one of those things were to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So that's his sort of exaggerated way of saying, there's so much more here that I didn't record. But I wrote this just so you know Jesus is God. Now, let's be honest, by the way. This incident doesn't really embellish Peter's reputation. He, He looks for a moment, like the very paragon of bold faith and mature faithfulness. But the speed with which he starts to sink is almost as amazing as the spunk that got him to step out of the boat in the first place. He looks like a hero when he takes that first step, but he's dripping wet and humiliated by the time he gets back in the boat. And if I were Peter, I'm not sure I'd want people to make much of this incident either. But it's a great object lesson about the frailty of faith and and the relationship of faith and assurance. And I think the most telling verse in the whole account is verse 31, and that's where I want to focus our attention this evening. As Peter starts to sink beneath the waves, verse 31 says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Little faith? Peter got out of the boat, didn't he? If his faith in Jesus' estimation, is slight and trifling, what does that say about the 11 guys who didn't even think about stepping out of the boat? But Jesus castigates Peter for the inadequacies of his faith. He singles him out to rebuke him, 
And that makes this a rebuke to all of us because, let's be honest, stepping out of a rowboat onto a stormy sea in the darkness of early morning with high waves, that pretty much makes whatever steps of faith you and I normally take seem pretty timid by comparison. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? That's a profound statement, and it is rich with implications for the doctrine of assurance Uh, full of lessons that apply to all of us about our faith and our doubts and the object of our faith and the, the weakness of our faith and the danger of coddling doubts and the importance of settled assurance. Incidentally, that it's translated as a phrase, O you of little faith. It's a single word in the Greek, oligapiste, oligapiste. It's a, it's a kind of a epithet. It's a, a, a descriptive nickname, little faith. Hey, little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus is engaging in a little bit of sanctified name-calling here. And I take this as a sort of good-natured teasing, but it has a serious point. By the way, that same expression, little faith, oligopiste, is used five times in the Gospel of Matthew, and it always comes from the lips of Jesus. You find it, first of all, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he rebukes the sin of materialistic worry, anxiety about what we'll wear and who will provide for us. And then in Matthew 6.30, he says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Then the second occurrence is that incident in Matthew 8 where he stills the storm. That passage actually foreshadows our narrative. Matthew 8, Jesus is in the boat with the disciples on a, on a sea, and a major storm blows in, and Jesus is asleep in the prow of the boat, and the disciples are literally in fear for their lives, experienced fishermen. So this was a frightening thing and a terrible storm. And so in desperation, they wake him up, and the narrative, Matthew 8, 26, gives the impression that he's still kind of stretching and yawning and trying to wake up very calm in the midst of this violent storm. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So Peter had heard this name before, right? And, and even after this, twice more in Matthew 16, verse 8. And Matthew 17, verse 20, Jesus again will chide the disciples with that expression, O you of little faith. And so ordinarily, if not always, whenever Jesus rebukes someone for the meagerness of their faith, he aims that rebuke at the people closest to him, the 12. And in this case, he levels the rebuke at one disciple, Peter, who arguably had shown the strongest faith of all of them, enough faith to step out of a boat onto a stormy sea, and yet his faith was fragile and easily gave way to doubt, and everybody could see that, which puts the decrepitude of our faith into perspective, right? And Jesus' rebuke to Peter, as I said, is a rebuke to all of us. We are certainly no better than the apostles were. Our faith is not even close to what it should be, If Jesus called the 12 disciples men of little faith, I wonder what he would say about our brand of comfortable Christianity. And if you feel the deficiencies of your faith, you're in good company there too. Scripture indicates that the disciples themselves realized that their own faith was weak and small. And so in Luke 17, verse 5, it records that at one point the apostles said to the Lord, 
Lord, increase our faith, which should be our prayer as well. It's like that man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, cure my unbelief. Our faith needs strengthening. Our assurance needs to be conscious and biblically informed. Don't take it for granted. You know, a lot of people think they have assurance of salvation or actually they've just been duped and anesthetized with a kind of apathetic presumption. They assume they're saved, and so they don't worry about it. They don't doubt their salvation, not because they've truly settled the issue, but because they've never really thought seriously about it. And I know for a fact that is the case because... Jesus said in the final judgment, many will be shocked, utterly shocked, to find themselves rejected by Christ and shut out of heaven. So assurance is an important issue. And if it's something you don't think much about, I hope to get you thinking biblically about it as we consider why Peter had enough faith to step out of the boat, but he lacked the assurance necessary to keep walking on water. And what you have here is an early example of the Same character defect that led Peter uh, to boast that he would never deny Christ. And then before the rooster crowed the next morning, Peter denied his master three times with cursing and oaths. Peter's sense of self-confidence was strong. And his faith in Christ was something less than he thought it was. He had a tendency to think more of himself than he should. And that always causes us to depend less on Christ than we should. Now, you and I aren't going to step out of a boat and try to walk on a heaving lake in gale force winds. At least, I hope you don't, because unless Jesus actually calls you, that's why Peter said, Lord, if it's you, call me. He had the call. If you do that when you haven't been called by Christ, then you're going to sink. But we are faced with the same kind of conundrum every day. We're called to follow Christ and obey his commandments, And we don't have any ability to do that on our own. We can't even obey the first and most fundamental commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You and I have never done that consistently for five straight minutes in our lives. Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We are fallen and defiled and incapable of meeting the standard of righteousness Jesus calls us to, Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's as impossible for you and me as it would be to walk on water. Actually, probably harder. So there are some lessons from Peter's experience that apply to you and to me, and that's what I want to explore with you tonight. Here are four principles of faith and assurance that we learn from Peter's failed attempt to walk on water. Lesson number one, if you want to write these down, there are four of them. Number one, faith is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. Where did Peter get the faith to step out of the boat in the first place? Do you think he summoned that belief out of his own heart? Was there some inherent power in Peter that enabled him to gather enough courage and and raw willpower to walk on water, you know, like mind over matter or something? That's what your average phony miracle worker typically claims. But that's not the case. Faith is a gift from God. And every time Jesus ever commended Peter for his faith, he makes that point. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. God is the source 
of your faith. And he is the one who gives you spiritual understanding so that you don't have anything praiseworthy in you that you haven't received as a gift from the gracious hand of God. And Peter tacitly affirms that truth when he says in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on water. It would have been the most presumptuous kind of folly for Peter to step out of that boat if Jesus had not said, come. But if Jesus says, come, like he did to Lazarus, even a dead guy can walk. Faith is not an artificial confidence that we can work our own miracles. Faith is simply trust in what the Lord says. And in this case, Jesus said, come. Now, this is a remarkable faith, and and those first steps are the amazing fruit of it. It must have been stunning for the other guys to see Peter step out of the boat like that and actually walk to Jesus. Amazing, until he starts to sink, get bogged down in the waves, and then for the next few seconds, as his knees begin to sink into the waves, it must have been kind of frightening for Peter, for him. But you know what? I think it probably, it strikes me as humorous, especially when Jesus takes his hand and raises him up again. This is a funny scene. I can't, I can't picture this any other way in my mind. These were guys, right? They're, they're many of them fishermen, down-to-earth guys, not uh, naturally refined and pious types. And I guarantee you they were laughing at Peter when he came back up out of the water, dripping wet. Jesus helps him back into the boat. And then Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. That's funny too, to a guy who just walked on water. By the way, I don't take this as a stern rebuke. There is humor in it. It's obviously full of irony. Peter just steps out of a boat onto a lake in a raging gale, and from a human perspective, that is an amazing step of faith. It literally unprecedented in the, in the annals of human history. Nobody had ever done this. And Jesus' instant response is a line that they've heard from him many times, oh, you of little faith. How quickly he went from heroic faith to dripping wet panic before he even made it from the boat all the way to Jesus. And yet... From where most of us sit, this really was a remarkable step of faith for Peter. He did walk on the water. That, again, is something in the recorded annals of human history no one else besides Jesus has ever done, even to this day. And yet Jesus doesn't commend Peter for his act of faith. He rebukes him for his doubt. That's because faith isn't meritorious. It's a gift. Notice, Jesus did nothing but encourage Peter's faith. He said, come. He didn't say anything like, you know, be careful. These are pretty high waves. But the doubt that assaulted Peter's faith stemmed from within him. The faith to step out of the boat was from God. But the doubt that made him sink was Peter's own, cultivated in a heart and a mind that was too prone to place too much confidence in the flesh. And the arm of flesh will always fail you. Peter took his eyes off Jesus. He failed because, and it's right here in the text, he concerned himself with the wind and the waves rather than the Lord of the wind and the waves. And again, this is after the stilling of the storm, several chapters later. How how could Peter so easily miss the point of Matthew 8? But verse 30, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. So why was he focused on the wind of all things, especially after he had already stepped out of the boat, after he had successfully stepped onto the water? 
I think the success went to his head. And he imagined this is something he was doing rather than seeing it as something Christ empowered him to do. And here's the difficulty for us. It's one thing to trust Christ to support us on a sea of turmoil in the midst of a fierce storm. It's something else entirely to imagine that you yourself possess the power to walk on water because you don't. And there's a very fine line between those two. As Peter's experience demonstrates, it is possible to step out in faith, genuinely trusting Christ, and yet stumble after you take those first steps of faith because faith gives way to a sinful self-confidence. And we discover through failures that the ability to walk on water wasn't ours to begin with. It's the power of Christ that makes those things possible. And even, even the faith that prompts that first step is a gracious gift from the hand of God. It is not something we conjure up in our own hearts by an act of sheer willpower. So that's lesson number one. Faith is a gift of God. Here's lesson number two. Faith comes in small and fragile measure. Basic gift of God, you can write it like this if you want, number two, but you only get a little bit of it. Listen to Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. That's a potent verse. Paul is saying, first of all, that if we truly understand that faith is a gift, that the measure of faith is assigned to us by God, that would keep us from trading away our faith for self-confidence. It would keep us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But here's the key point. Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Faith comes to us in specific measures, and it is allotted to us by God. And so the key is to live by that faith. Nurture it. Use it to make sober judgments. Hold tightly to it and don't give in to the temptation to trade away your faith for fleshly presumption or carnal self-confidence or over-reliance on the arm of flesh. It's always intrigued me that Jesus chides Peter for the smallness of his faith because, after all, Peter had faith enough to step out of a fishing boat onto a stormy body of water. And I can't imagine any scenario where I would be likely to do that. And so at that moment when Peter takes that first step and doesn't immediately plunge into the lake, his faith looks to me like great faith. But the real test, what we learn from this passage is the real test of faith's strength and maturity is not that first step. It's all about the staying power. The one who endures to the end will be saved, Mark 13, 13. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We can be confident that we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's Hebrews 3, 14. So the distinguishing mark of authentic faith is its staying power. But the good news is, that the same God who gives us a measure of faith is the one who keeps us in the faith. I wonder if towards the end of his life, Peter thought of this incident on the Sea of Galilee in the storm when he wrote 1 Peter 1.5, which says, True believers are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
That's what mature faith sounds like. Now, I'm not suggesting that faith instantly and automatically conquers every doubt. That is why our assurance is sometimes elusive. It's perfectly normal for faith to be beset with doubts, as you see here with Peter. Even a spectacular step of faith can instantly be derailed by the stumbling block of doubt if your faith loses its proper focus. Faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. That's the lesson of that man in Mark 9 who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, cure my unbelief. Doubts often assault our faith at the most inopportune moment, and that is why it's crucial to keep your faith firmly focused on its object and nurture your faith and guard it carefully. And that brings us to lesson number three. Faith is a gift of God. That's number one. Second, faith comes in small and fragile measure. That's number two. And in fact, faith is as fragile as the vessel that holds it. But here's some good news. Lesson number three, faith is as powerful as its object. Faith is as powerful as its object. Peter gets called little faith here, and the disciples do all the time. And that may sound like a put down, probably did. And there is a note of rebuke in the expression, but the fact is, little faith is a pretty good starting point. Peter's little faith was enough to give him courage to step out of the boat. Jesus said a measure of faith no bigger than a mustard seed is enough to move either mountains or mulberry trees. Luke 17, 6, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Matthew 17, 20, truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now think about this. Those things are true not because there is power in believing something per se. Those promises are true because if your faith has the proper object, Christ... He's the one who holds the universe together, and nothing is impossible for him. Christ is the only proper object and focus for our faith. True faith is always just implicit trust in Christ, belief in his promises, obedience to his commands. Faith is not the kind of irrational presumption most people think it is. If, if, you, you, know, like if you believe in something, anything, if you believe it strongly enough, they say, that'll make it true. But that's not true. Believing something doesn't make it true. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. I always think of that song that goes, some of you old people will remember it because I'm old and I remember this one. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. My former pastor, Warren Wiersbe, used to say, no one really believes that because if that were true, we'd be up to our armpits and flowers. But authentic faith, real faith, has a true object, and it's the object of faith, not the fact of your believing something per se, but the object of faith is where the power lies. In other words, the power that enabled Peter to walk on water came from Christ. It did not come from within Peter. Peter's problem was that the focus of his faith shifted away from its true object. The proof of that is seen in the fact that when Christ lifted Peter up again, he was able to walk on the water just fine again. And that lets us know that Peter's faith was still intact, even though he faltered for a moment. And to me, this is the most encouraging lesson 
in the whole account. So let's review. Lesson number one, faith is a gift from God. Number two, faith comes in small and fragile measure. Number three, faith is as powerful as its object. And now number four, faith can survive even when our assurance is shaken. Your faith can survive even when your assurance is shaken. And Peter frequently had these great spurts of faith followed almost instantly by lapses. Here he steps out of the boat and incredibly, while he is standing on top of this heaving body of water, he immediately starts to sink. And that is a perfect metaphor for the easy and almost instant fallibility of Peter's faith. Really, every time he experiences a triumph, you see this. You remember Peter's confession, Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This was Peter's most triumphant moment during his years with Christ. But then, just two verses later, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him for prophesying that he was going to die. And Jesus has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then there was Peter's infamous boast about his willingness to die with Christ. And before the rooster crowed the next morning, he had denied Christ three times with cursing. And what's significant here is that Jesus knew Peter was going to fail before it ever happened. When When he denied Christ, Jesus had told Peter in painful detail what was about to happen. Luke 22, 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And Peter's faith didn't fail. His sanctification stalled momentarily. His courage collapsed. His assurance was shaken. Even went back to fishing or started to, but his faith survived the failure. And Jesus knew it would because he actually commissioned Peter for apostolic ministry in practically the same breath with which he foretold Peter's failure. I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you are turned again, strengthen your brothers. As weak as your faith is, they need your help. Peter's assurance came to him in the wake of those failures. You see it in full bloom at Pentecost when Peter is the one who stands up and proclaims the gospel to the nations. You see it again when he answered the captain of the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, and said, we must obey God rather than men. Do whatever you will to us. So let me sum up with this. Settled assurance is the fruit of mature faith. Don't be discouraged if your faith is assaulted with doubts. By all means, seek assurance, nurture your faith, pursue the hope that is set before you, and don't be tempted to give up in despair when you stumble in the dark or sink in the storm. And above all, don't take your eyes off Christ because he is the one true object of authentic saving faith. He will preserve your faith 
those trials will perfect your faith and the Holy Spirit will give you assurance. Let's pray. Lord, we do believe, help our unbelief, strengthen our faith, cause it to increase, deliver us from every hint of unbelief or doubt, fix the eyes of our hearts firmly on Christ and give us grace to stay properly focused so that we might serve you with true faithfulness until Christ returns or you call us home to glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.